Hello, friends. In honor of the 234th anniversary of the ratification of the Constitution, the National Constitution Center has launched an exciting crowdfunding campaign. We are now up to 499 donations from all 50 states. I'm thrilled to share that Wyoming generously came through, and we've now received support from all 50 states in the Union, uh, including... uh, the Northern Mariana Islands, Canada, China, Israel, and Switzerland for a total of $72,551. Let's keep it going. If you haven't donated yet, show your commitment to lifelong constitutional education. Think about how much learning together on We the People means to you and signal your support with a donation of any size, $5 or $10. If everyone contributes even a small amount, we will reach our goal. And thanks to those of you who are signing up for recurring monthly donations of 5 or $10 a month, that makes a huge difference as well. Please go to constitutioncenter.org forward slash we the people. That's all one word, all lowercase. And donate what you can to show your commitment to lifelong learning and light. And you're going to hear a lot of it on today's episode. Here it is. Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The National Constitution Center is launching an initiative to explore the history and meaning of the First Amendment and its current relevance, anchored by the inspiring 50-ton First Amendment tablet, which we've just installed at the Constitution Center overlooking Independence Mall. Today on We the People, I'm so excited to convene two of America's greatest First Amendment scholars to teach us about some of the most important Supreme Court cases involving the First Amendment. Each of them has recommended uh, four cases. I had the pleasure of reading them as as homework for the conversation, and you can too, after the show. And it's so meaningful to learn about the principles and applications of the First Amendment from these two great scholars. Robert Post is Sterling Professor of Law at Yale Law School and author of Citizens Divided, a constitutional theory of campaign finance reform. Robert, thank you so much for honoring us by joining We the People. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. And Keith Whittington is the Wilson Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton and author of Speak Freely, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech. Keith, it's an honor to have you and welcome back to We the People. Thank you. Happy to be here. Robert, let's begin with you. The first decision that you've suggested that we read is Justice Holmes's immortal dissent in Abrams versus United States, 1919. So the importance of this dissent is that it is the first time that you see a justice of the Supreme Court um, actually contend that the First Amendment was enforceable by courts, that the First Amendment created a right in the sense in which we now understand rights, which is to say, Um, immunities from government prosecution and from government sanction, which are protected by courts. Before that, uh, the First Amendment was understood to be uh, aspirational. So until actually the 1930s, the Supreme Court never protected a First Amendment right. And until 
the Abrams dissent in November of 1919, the First Amendment was generally thought to incorporate Blackstone's idea of freedom of speech. The First Amendment protects the freedom of speech. So what is the freedom of speech? And uh, commentators almost from the beginning understood the freedom of speech to refer to freedom of speech in Blackstone, who was the great English commentator and talked about the freedom of the press, which English persons had, you had as a common law right. And this was a freedom from prior restraints, which means the state couldn't make you get a license before you could publish a book, but not from subsequent punishments, which means that the state could punish you for seditious libel or for criminal libel or for breaking a law which prohibited, for example, obscenity. And as late as 1907, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who writes The Dissent in Abrams, publishes an opinion for the court in a case called Patterson versus Colorado, which says the First Amendment simply prohibits prior restraints, but it allows the state to punish you for saying true statements as well as false statements. That's 1907. And the story of how Holmes came to change his mind and the country came to change their mind to understand the First Amendment as a judicially enforceable right by 1919 is a really fascinating one. Thank you so much for that, Robert. Uh, I'm now going to read a selection from the decision. This is Justice Holmes. Here we go. Persecution for the expression of opinion seems to me perfectly logical. If you have no doubt of your premises or your power and want a certain result with all your heart, you naturally express your wishes in law and sweep away all opposition. But when men have realized that time has upset many fighting faiths, they may come to believe even more than they believe the very foundations of their own conduct, that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas, that the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market, and that truth is the only ground upon which their wishes safely can be carried out. That, at any rate, is the theory of our Constitution. Keith our next opinion is West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett, 1943. Yeah, I think this is a, a really interesting case that also is breaking new ground in how we think about um, the First Amendment. Um, it's also a striking case because it required the justices to uh, change their minds um, about how they had already decided a very similar case uh, just a few years uh, before. Barnett involved um, a case involving Jehovah's Witnesses, um, uh, Walter Barnett, um, had several children uh, in public schools in West Virginia. He was a, a Jehovah's Witness. Among the uh, commitments of the Jehovah's Witness was not to say the Pledge of Allegiance, among other things. Um, the public schools of West Virginia, um, as do many schools, um, required students at the beginning of the day to face the flag and recite uh, the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, when his uh, children refused to do so, they were disciplined by the school. The court had um, decided a case in 1940 called Minersville School District versus Gobitis um, and remarkably decided 8-1 
um, in favor of the public schools in that case, um, saying the public schools could require um, uh, children to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, because they thought that the pledge was so extraordinarily important to the requirements of American citizenship um, and maintaining a patriotic country um, as we were entering into uh, World War II, that they thought this was an overwhelming need on the part of the government. There was a huge backlash, at least in elite circles, um, against uh, that opinion. At the same time, there was also um, uh, attacks on Jehovah's Witnesses, um, partially as a consequence um, of that um, decision. And so the justice pretty quickly changed their minds about whether or not they'd gotten that one right. Um, and so when the West Virginia case came up in 1943, then uh, the court um, flipped uh, narrowly, but on a 6-3 opinion uh, written by uh, Justice Jackson, um, in which it, one, emphasized that school children in schools, uh, public schools, have First Amendment rights. Uh, this later becomes very important to think about what uh, rights people have in the school setting uh, in particular. Um, and moreover, it establishes a very important principle about uh, what becomes known as compelled speech. Um, that is, um, a lot of uh, First Amendment cases and a lot of free speech controversies we think about um, involve people saying things um, that the government then wants to suppress. Um, the Barnett case is very interesting because it raises the question of can you refuse to say things um, the government wants you to say? The court winds up very firmly coming down and saying that right to remain silent, to refuse to um, go along with um, something the government wants you to believe in and speak about um, is also an important thing that needs to be protected by the First Amendment right. And the court offers, um, and Jackson in particular, offers a very rousing defense of the importance of, of the intellectual freedom to be free from the state imposition of orthodoxy, which compelled speech can lead to. This is Justice Jackson in Barnett. To sustain the compulsory flag salute, we're required to say that a Bill of Rights, which guards the individual's right to speak his own mind, left it open to public authorities to compel him to utter what is not in his mind. If there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. Robert, next, Whitney versus California, 1927. So uh, this is a, a prosecution for uh, violating a statute which prohibits a speech which uh, advocates the overthrow of the government. Uh, and notice uh, that the opinion here is by uh, Brandeis. It's a concurring opinion, but actually it's a dissent because the court upholds the conviction. So we're in the world like we were in Abrams, where the court as a whole is still uh, applying laws which suppress speech, which is critical of the government. In Abrams, uh, Holmes, uh, in the passage that you read, that you read to us, that eloquent passage, Holmes uh, gave an account of freedom of speech which stressed truth. He says that uh, freedom in the marketplace of ideas is the only way and only ground on which we can know what the truth is, and that is typically, in First Amendment terms, known as the marketplace of ideas theory of the First Amendment. We need to be able to speak freely in order to be able to know what's true and not true. Uh, that's actually very controversial as a theory of uh, truth uh, because uh, in most instances where we as a society get at truth, we, uh, we don't do that. So when we think about uh, professional journals, they don't function according to a marketplace of ideas. When we tenure 
uh, faculty members, we don't do it according to a marketplace of ideas we tolerate, but we also judge. And Holmes is saying you can't judge whether it's better or worse. And in fact, we do all the time. Um, so Brandeis offered a different theory of why we want to protect freedom of speech. He didn't offer an epistemological theory, a theory sounding in how we get at truth. Instead, he offered a theory that went to politics. He says in his concurrence in Whitney, we have freedom of speech because without it, we couldn't govern ourselves. He says that to govern ourselves, every one of us has to be actively involved in political discussion um, to the end that the state can be responsive to the will of the people. If we don't talk, we don't know what the will of the people is. And therefore, says Brandeis, the engagement in political discussion is a political duty which every citizen has to have, and the state must respect that duty by not censoring the speech of its citizens. And uh, that is a new theory of freedom of speech, which is developed by Brandeis as opposed to Holmes. Holmes always spoke in this register of truth. He was uh, an American pragmatist. He was good friends. He grew up with William James. And when you spoke that language about the marketplace, it's very much a lie to how William James used to talk about the cash value of truth. So he's thinking in terms of William James or Charles Peirce, and Brandeis is thinking politics. And he's saying you can't have a democracy without freedom of speech, and therefore we have to reinterpret the First Amendment to be what later decisions will call the guardian of American democracy. This is Justice Brandeis in Whitney versus California. Those who won our independence believed that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties and that in its government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. They valued liberty both as an end and as a means. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. They believe that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth, that without free speech and assembly, discussion would be futile, that with them, discussion affords ordinarily adequate protection against the dissemination of noxious doctrine, that public discussion is a political duty, and that this should be a fundamental principle of the American government. Keith, our next decision is Terminiello versus City of Chicago, 1949. Yeah, Terminiello is an uh, interesting case. occurs um, right there in the post-war period in 1949. Um, Arthur Terminiello was a, a very controversial figure in the 1930s and 1940s. He was a critic of the New Deal, a harsh critic of the New Deal. Um, in the 1930s, um, uh, he opposed American entry uh, into World War II in the early 1940s. Um, but he was also a conspiracy theorist and anti-Semite who encouraged anti-Semitic conspiracy theories in particular, as well as a range of others. Um, he was an advocate of American Christian nationalism and a aggressive and provocative uh, public speaker. 
Um, so in 1946, um, he went on a speaking tour across the country, espousing uh, these kinds of arguments, um, attacking uh, Jews in particular as um, sources of communism um, in the United States and a threat um, to the United States. Um, he was giving a, a public talk uh, in an auditorium uh, in uh, Chicago. Um, and uh, as was often true of his speeches, um, this attracted a, a significant anti-counter-protest uh, anti um, uh, outside the auditorium. Uh, police were called in to try to keep the peace and try to keep um, the protesters out of the auditorium. Uh, the situation turned uh, rather violent uh, with people uh, throwing things and attacking uh, the auditorium. And eventually the police arrested Terminello for disorderly conduct as a consequence of uh, spurring this uh, reaction from the crowd. Um, part of what's interesting about the Terminello case is that it's Again, not an effort of by the government to uh, suppress speech they necessarily disliked. Justice Jackson, who in this case winds up in the dissent, um, he was, of course, writing the majority opinion in Barnett um, that I talked about just a minute ago. Um, in this case, he doesn't think uh, the First Amendment rights um, are really at stake here um, in a significant way, in part because he emphasizes the government's not really concerned with suppressing the content um, of Terminello's uh, speech. Um, what the government's concerned with, from Jackson's perspective, is keeping the peace, um, and they're concerned that riots breaking out as a consequence of uh, Terminello's uh, speech. Justice Douglas um, writes the majority opinion for the court. Douglas becomes a very prominent uh, First Amendment voice on the court um, uh, during these years. Um, and Douglas really emphasizes in a very short opinion for the court, the fact that controversial speech can spark outrage in an audience um, itself uh, is a real concern and the state shouldn't play a role in helping the audience shut down speech um, as a consequence of that uh, public hostility. Um, this is a problem that gets characterized as the heckler's veto problem uh, within uh, the scholarly literature that's emerging around these uh, problems at the time. Um, the concern is that an angry audience members can shut down uh, speeches that are too uh, controversial. Um, all through American history, um, the police often facilitated that. And so when the audience uh, would get uh, too unruly um, in the context of controversial speeches, Police were often quick to want to rush in and usher the speaker um, off the platform uh, in order to uh, prevent uh, violence from breaking out. Um, and so while the government may end up in the first actor uh, trying to suppress speech, um, they were the instrument of suppressing speech, an instrument um, of the mob. And Douglas really wants to emphasize the government shouldn't be playing that role. Um, the police's responsibility in that context is to maintain the peace uh, by dealing with those who are getting unruly and violent, uh, not by punishing uh, the speaker who is saying controversial things that the crowd doesn't like. Here's Justice Douglas in Terminello. The vitality of civil and political institutions in our society depends on free discussion. As Chief Justice Hughes wrote, it is only through free debate and free exchange of ideas that government remains responsive to the will of the people and peaceful change is affected. The right to speak freely and to promote diversity of ideas and programs is therefore one of the chief distinctions that sets us apart from totalitarian regimes. Accordingly, a function of free speech under our system of government is to invite dispute. It may indeed best serve its high purpose when it induces a condition of unrest, creates dissatisfaction with conditions as they are, or even stirs people to anger. Next is Stromberg versus People of California, 1931. So I recommended this case 
because it's actually the first case in which the Supreme Court sets aside a subsequent punishment in the name of the First Amendment. And uh, when you just heard uh, Justice Douglas quote Chief Justice Hughes, it is this case to which he's referring. And what we had here was a statute by California which prohibited the display of any sign, in this case a flag, which would be an invitation to anarchism or opposition to organized government. So somebody was waving the red flag of anarchism and was convicted of sedition. And uh, the theory here is that the people get to tell the government what to do. The government doesn't get to tell the people what to believe. This is a huge revolution in our theory of government. Before this case, seditious libel was commonly prosecuted. In 1918, for example, um, the federal government passed the Espionage Act of 1918 called the, the Sedition Act because it said you could be put into jail if you said anything, which brought disrespect upon the government of the United States. It is, in fact, the passages of statutes like that which led uh, Brandeis and Holmes in the teens and the 20s to develop this theory of the First Amendment. And here you see, in this case, it coming to fruition. Seditious libel is still a crime in most countries in the world. In most countries in the world, people like you and I are considered subjects of the government. If you lived in Great Britain, you were a subject, you are a subject of the queen. But we are not a subject, we're a citizen. We control the government. The government is our servant, says Madison, right in the 18th century. We are not the servants of the government. The First Amendment is the place in the Constitution that enshrines that thought. But it doesn't begin to do that until the third decade of the 20th century. And this is the opinion in which Hughes, for the first time, sets forward that theory. Now, it's important to keep this in mind because we see that the First Amendment develops out of a theory of political democracy. And in very recent times, the Supreme Court has begun to think about the First Amendment as a free-floating theory of freedom of speech, not political speech, not democracy, but speech itself. And of course, everything you do is through speech. As Aristotle says, we are a speaking animal. <laughs> we couldn't be human if we didn't speak. And it is very difficult uh, to find a path where the present court has gone, which is to say speech as such that's the language of Justice Souter. Speech as such is protected. That's not the theory in Stromberg. Stromberg is saying the speech which allows us to govern ourselves is what's protected. And that's coming right out of Brandeis. Chief Justice Hughes in Stromberg says that the law in question might be construed to include peaceful and orderly opposition to government by legal means and within constitutional limitations. The maintenance of the opportunity for free political discussion to the end that government may be responsive to the will of the people and that changes may be obtained by lawful means, an opportunity essential to the security of the republic is a fundamental principle of our constitutional system, a statute which upon its face is so vague and indefinite as to permit the punishment of the fair use of this opportunity is repugnant to the guarantee of liberty contained in the 14th Amendment. Keith, next is Sweezy versus State of New Hampshire, 1947. Now, Sweezy versus New Hampshire is uh, not generally uh, mentioned as, I'd say, one of the top 10 of uh, 
free, uh, First Amendment free speech uh, type of cases, in part uh, because the court um, self-consciously avoids putting this uh, straightforwardly in a, a First Amendment context, um, as is true of a lot of subversive activity cases that the court uh, winds up uh, grappling with in the 1940s um, and 1950s. Um, the court is often trying to deal with those cases a little indirectly rather than uh, taking them um, head on. And that's true of Sweezy as well. But part of what's really intriguing about the Sweezy case is what happens to it later, um, that the court is planning ideas um, in Sweezy that become quite important for uh, later cases and might well become quite important for uh, future cases uh, that we'll be deciding uh, down the road uh, because Sweezy plants the idea that there's academic freedom um, that has First Amendment um, implications and there are limits um, as to what the government can do uh, relative to what happens in university uh, classrooms uh, in general. Paul Sweezy uh, was um, or became um, sort of the leading Marxist economist in the mid part of the 20th century. He was already publishing some uh, quite significant work uh, along those lines uh, by the time this case of society publishes additional uh, important work later. Um, he was a lecturer at Harvard uh, University uh, before World War II, but then during World War II, he served in military uh, intelligence, uh, doing economic analysis. And when the war was over, uh, rather than returning to an academic career, um, he founded uh, the Monthly Review, which became a very prominent and important um, left-wing journal of opinion in the mid-20th uh, century, and spent the rest of his career uh, really as a writer, an editor, um, a public speaker on these kinds um, of issues. The state of New Hampshire legislature directed, uh, as many uh, state legislatures did at the period, um, directed investigations into subversive activities that were occurring in the state. New Hampshire was doing it a little differently than some other states did in that it directed uh, the state attorney general um, specifically to go out and investigate um, subversive persons and subversive activities in the state and, if necessary, bring prosecutions of those persons. As Following that charge, the attorney general um, then subpoenaed uh, Sweezy um, uh, to answer questions on a host of issues. Um, Sweezy cooperated and answered some of the questions, but refused to answer um, questions relating to his involvement in Progressive Party uh, in particular, um, and also um, uh, refused to answer questions about a lecture he had made as a guest speaker in a classroom uh, at the University of New Hampshire in a class. Um, this then uh, led the court uh, to think about, well, what was the uh, constitutional authority for uh, the attorney general to ask these kinds of questions and what's the limits on his authority? Chief Justice Warren, in writing uh, for the court, um, as a whole, highlighted the First Amendment issues, um, but then ultimately grounded the opinion on a due process claim that the legislature hadn't given clear enough instructions uh, to the attorney general to guide his investigation. Um, and so as a consequence, the attorney general was a little too free-floating uh, in what kinds of questions he'd ask. And given the First Amendment considerations, Warren thought that was going to be inadequate to justify uh, the governmental intrusion of asking these kinds of questions. Uh, Felix Frankfurter uh, wrote a notable concurring opinion as well. Felix Frankfurter, before he became a justice, was a Harvard Law School professor. There's a paragraph in Warren's majority opinion um, on the academic freedom issues and the importance of uh, the state not intruding into university classrooms um, in situations uh, like this. Frankfurter has a much longer pa 
passage um, talking about the importance of academic freedom and the importance of universities being spaces um, in which even uh, very dissenting uh, minority opinions can be freely expressed and thought through um, and that it would be uh, deeply problematic uh, for the future of intellectual life in the United States if uh, the state could intrude into these classroom contexts um, and insist, again, that people only articulate orthodoxies that the state approves of um, in those classrooms rather than articulating theories uh, that the state uh, disapproves of. Here is Chief Justice Warren on academic freedom. The essentiality of freedom in the community of American universities is almost self-evident. No one should underestimate the vital role in a democracy that's played by those who guide and train our youth to impose any straitjacket upon the intellectual leaders in our colleges and universities would imperil the future of our nation. And here is Justice Frankfurter's concurrence, uh, quoting a South Africa statement of academic freedom. In a university, knowledge is its own end and not merely a means to an end. A university ceases to be true to its own nature if it becomes the tool of church or state or any sectional interest. A university is characterized by the spirit of free inquiry, its ideal being the ideal of Socrates, to follow the argument where it leads. This implies the right to examine, question, modify, or reject traditional ideas and beliefs. Dogma and hypotheses are incompatible, and the concept of an immutable doctrine is repugnant to the spirit of a university. Our next opinion is Thornhill versus Alabama, 1940. So Thornhill versus Alabama is a full decade after Stromberg. And Stromberg puts on the table the fact that we're protecting freedom of speech in order to protect the forms of communication necessary for our republic. And the question is, well, what sort of communications are necessary for it? What's the relationship between talking and having a republic? And Thornhill versus Alabama written in 1940 by that great civil libertarian whom we don't remember so much today, Frank Murphy, um, offers the first fully developed theory of what is the connection between freedom of speech and having a democracy. It prepares the ground for the wonderful opinions which uh, Keith has put on the table and has um, expounded. But those opinions would have been inconceivable um, without the analytic work that's done in the Thornhill case. So Thornhill says, ask the question, what is the relationship between my speaking and a democracy? There's some theories of that which go to, uh, in order to have a democracy, I need the necessary information to make decisions when I vote. That's a theory we associate with a theorist named Alexander Mickeljohn. That's not the theory in Thornhill versus Alabama. In Thornhill, um, coming right out of Brandeis, it says having a democracy is having a form of government in which you believe the government is responsive to you. It requires your active participation. It's not a matter of getting the information. And it's not merely a matter of voting. It's a matter of talking to your peers, talking to other people, and forming public opinion. So what Thornhill says is, the forms of communication which are constitutionally protected are those which are necessary to help form, and this is the language which you see in Thornhill, public opinion. And of course, uh, participation in media, in books and magazines and movies are necessary for the formation of public opinion. Art is necessary for the formation of public opinion. And in Thornhill itself, labor picketing, 
because you're saying to the community at large, to the public at large, um, this is a controversy worth your attention and you should have an opinion about it. So what Thornhill puts on the table is the following um, equation. In a democracy, we are free to form public opinion. And in a democracy, the state is responsive to public opinion, not responsive necessarily only to voting, which is a one-time decision that you make in private, which no one knows what you're doing, but to public opinion, which is an ongoing process, which you can continuously and always get engaged with. And the state has to be responsive to that. And if it's open to you, then we can have a democracy in which you can feel legitimately that the state is responsive to you. Now, in public opinion, there's an adjective, public. And the question is, what do we mean by public opinion? And thinking about the public-private distinction and when you have speech that is about a matter of public concern or speech that is about a public figure or speech that is about a public official, this is the fundamental axis on which modern First Amendment doctrine is constructed. And it comes right out of this opinion by Murphy in Thornhill. Here is Murphy in Thornhill. The freedom of speech and of the press, guaranteed by the Constitution, embraces, at the least, the liberty to discuss publicly and truthfully all matters of public concern without previous restraint or fear of subsequent punishment. The exigencies of the colonial period and the efforts to secure freedom from oppressive administration developed a broadened conception of these liberties as adequate to supply the public need for information and education with respect to the significant issues of the time. The Continental Congress, in its letter sent to the inhabitants of Quebec in 1774, referred to the five great rights and said, quote, the last right we shall mention regards the freedom of the press. The importance of this consists beside the advancement of truth, science, morality, and arts in general, in its diffusion of liberal sentiments on the administration of government, its ready communication of thoughts between subjects, and its consequential promotion of union among them, whereby oppressive officers are shamed or intimidated into more honorable and just modes of conducting affairs. That's from the Journal of the Continental Congress. Freedom of discussion, if it would fulfill its historic function in this nation, must embrace all issues about which information is needed or appropriate to enable the members of society to cope with the exigencies of their period. The National Constitution Center relies on support from listeners like you to provide nonpartisan constitutional education to Americans of all ages. Every dollar you give to support the We the People podcast campaign will be doubled with a generous one-to-one match with up to a total of $234,000. That's made possible by the John Templeton Foundation. We've reached our goal of support in all 50 states and are now looking for broad participation. Friends, if you're listening and thinking, why should I give $5? It won't make a difference. It will. If everyone gives 5 or 10, we'll reach our goal and signal how much learning together means to all of us. So go to constitutioncenter.org forward slash we the people. And thanks so much for your crucial support. That is constitutioncenter.org forward slash we the people, all one word, all lowercase. Now back to the show. Our last opinion is Texas versus Johnson, 1989. 
So Texas versus Johnson uh, comes much later than most of the other opinions uh, we're talking about. Um, comes in 1989. It's it's uh, in some ways not breaking uh, new ground in a way that a lot of the other um, cases we're talking about um, did. It's applying a lot of principles that the court had articulated um, in earlier cases and earlier context, but applies it in a uh, context the court had largely avoided um, up to then and was uh, proved to be an extraordinarily controversial uh, context of actually applying these principles um, in a particular situation. Uh, Gregory Johnson burned an American flag uh, during a protest uh, outside the Republican Party's uh, national convention um, in 1984 in Dallas, Texas. Um, he was arrested uh, for doing so. Texas had on the books um, a state law, as did uh, every other state um, at the time, um, that prohibited, in Texas's case, uh, desecrating um, a state or national uh, flag. And Johnson was fined and sentenced to a year in prison for violating this statute. The Texas uh, court heard a First Amendment challenge um, to this and upheld uh, the validity of this kind of restriction um, on speech activities. Um, and the U.S. Supreme Court um, was narrowly divided. So it was a 5-4 decision in favor of Johnson in this case. Uh, the majority uh, was written by uh, William Brennan, who was a stalwart of the Warren Court, uh, an extraordinarily important figure on the left in the 1960s. This was near the end of his career um, on the court, writing in 1989. Brennan wrote um, a lot of important decisions on the First Amendment during those uh, Warren Court uh, years. And here, Brennan comes out defending uh, Johnson's uh, right to burn a flag, um, even in this very controversial and emotional context. Part of what's significant, though, about this case, besides the fact that flag burning was so widely reviled um, and uh, illegal across the country, um, is uh, it, it takes on a real challenge, one of similar to what we saw in Terminello, of this heckler veto problem, um, of worrying about how a crowd is going to react to what um, a speaker is doing and the kind of provocative acts um, a speaker is engaging in. And part of the concern um, that the government has in these situations is that uh, crowds might become unruly um, if people are burning uh, the American flag. And so to what degree should the state be worried about uh, hostile crowd reactions um, uh, to uh, controversial uh, speakers? So it raises this heckler's veto problem. It raises an interesting issue about uh, whether a burning of flag should even count as speech um, at all. Um, so it's what the court has characterized as an expressive activity. Um, so uh, Johnson was not giving a speech. Um, he was not writing an article or a book. Um, he was uh, simply burning a flag. Um, and then the question is, well, is that kind of activity um, that has symbolic significance, um, but it's not a speech, it's not a book, it's not writing, um, is that still um, protected uh, by the First Amendment? Um, and the court emphatically said um, that it was. Um, that kind of symbolic activity is still expressing an idea. Um, it's precisely because it's expressing the idea that the crowd is getting so riled up. It's exactly because it's expressing an idea um, that the state wants to suppress it um, because they dislike the idea uh, being laid out uh, by Johnson in this case. And so as a consequence, um, that kind of symbolic action uh, needs uh, constitutional protection. Notably, the reaction at the time was extraordinarily hostile. Uh, there were uh, threats of passing a constitutional amendment uh, to carve out flag burning uh, from First Amendment uh, protection, um, partially in order to fend off uh, this demand for a constitutional amendment. Uh, Congress instead passes its own federal statute banning flag burning. Um, and then you get a subsequent case by the U.S. Supreme Court saying, well, Congress can't do this either, um, and reaffirms uh, the core uh, First Amendment um, claims that the court laid 
out in Texas v. Johnson. Um, even though the court recognizes that uh, the government has a genuine and important interest in maintaining national unity and trying to encourage people to be good patriotic citizens. Um, and you might think that uh, burning flags is very inconsistent with that. Uh, the court nonetheless um, emphasizes uh, that the nature of our particular patriotic citizenry um, is that they have to be free uh, to disagree even with uh, national uh, sentiments and national activities. Um, and they can express that um, in ways that many people regard as unpatriotic. Here's Justice Brennan in Texas v. Johnson. We're tempted to say that the flag's deservedly cherished place in our community will be strengthened, not weakened, by our holding today. Our decision is a reaffirmation of the principles of freedom and inclusiveness that the flag best rep reflects and the conviction that our toleration of criticism, such as Johnson's, is a sign and source of our strength. Precisely because it's our flag that's involved, One's response to the flag burner may exploit the uniquely persuasive power of the flag itself. We can imagine no more appropriate response to burning a flag than waving one's own. No better way to counter a flag burner's message than by saluting the flag that burns. No surer means of preserving the dignity even of the flag that burned than by, as one witness here did, according its remains, a respectful burial. Robert Post and Keith Whittington, thank you so much on behalf of We the People for inspiring us by suggesting that we read these eight celestially meaningful cases. And we, the people listeners, will put all them up on the resource page because we have just a few moments left and convening both of you is such a privilege. I'm going to ask for some further reading. We've talked about several philosophical sources that inspired the opinions discussed today. Brandeis and Whitney, for example, cites Jefferson's first inaugural and Pericles' funeral oration. Uh, we heard about the Continental Congress and its letter to the inhabitants of Quebec that was inspired by Whig civic Republican literature like Cato's Letters or Milton's Areopagitica or Locke's essay concerning toleration. Uh, Robert Post, if you had to pick one or two of the philosophical sources that inspired the founders who wrote the First Amendment, what would it be and why? Um, in terms of the philosophical uh, sources that uh, inspired the founders, they come out of a Whig tradition. And so they would have been inspired by Reformation writers like Milton and Areopagitica. Uh, you know, John Stuart Mill uh, is yet to come. If you actually look at the history of the First Amendment, it arises out of a combination between, on the one hand, freedom of the press, which was traditional because uh, starting with uh, the... Uh, Tudor kings, they had imposed licenses to have a printing press. It was like the internet of the day. And on the other hand, freedom of conscience, which was a religious right and which comes out of the Reformation. The First Amendment combines these two things. And so the religious sources of freedom of conscience, of Locke, people like that, very important for the framers. Thank you so much for that. Keith, which philosophical sources that inspired the founders would you suggest for We the People listeners? Well, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one thing that's quite notable about the time in which they are starting to think about these uh, free speech issues is that religious dissent and political dissent are very closely connected um, in how it's being theorized and talked about and what the politics surrounding uh, the development of these uh, rights are. And so the ability um, of dissenters in the community uh, to not have to go along with a majority opinion, communal orthodoxy, uh, but be able to believe different things, be able to express 
address those different things is initially, at least, um, often a kind of controversy that's playing out in the religious sphere um, and the question of, of religious dissenters, um, and then gets carried over uh, from there and applied to um, the specific um, uh, political context. So there's a nice symmetry in the fact that the First Amendment uh, brings these uh, different freedoms together in a single uh, piece of text um, because of the historical um, connection between the two. Um, what is striking about the philosophical development of these ideas over time is the extent to which um, there's a lot more uh, thinking about these issues that occurs after the founding. And so uh, the founders uh, recognize that these free speech principles are incredibly important. Um, they're incredibly important out of that English inheritance, and they um, uh, recognize they need to be embodied in state constitutions in the United States and in the federal constitution as well. Uh, but the real thinking through of what are the implications of those commitments um, is something that's uh, occurring over the next two centuries, both certainly outside the courts, um, but then also, as we've seen, inside the courts as well. Thanks so much for that. Robert, might we take a beat on a deep dive into Areopagitica by Milton? It's so meaningful to read from the primary text, and we'll put them online. And Milton in Areopagitica worries about the consequences of regulating printing. If we think to regulate printing, thereby to rectify manners, we must regulate all recreations and pastimes, all that is delightful to man. No music must be heard, no song be set or sung, but what is grave and Doric, there must be licensing dancers, that no gesture, motion, or deportment be taught our youth, and by what their allowance shall be thought honest, for such Plato was provided of. It will ask more than the work of 20 licensers to examine all the lutes, the violins, and the guitars in every house. They must not be suffered to prattle as they do, but they must be licensed in what they say, oh, the prose is just so spectacular. What is Milton concerned about in this imagining of licensing censors planted in houses and regulating music and conversations between men and women? And, and what was the context of, of this great uh, piece uh, that made it so significant? You have to understand, if we speak about what, who is the public, uh, in ancient times in Greece and Rome, the public were the people who could assemble within the sound of a human voice you know, in the agora, in the square, in the public square. That was the public. The invention of the printing press changes this entirely. And it produces a notion of a public, of people who are strangers to each other, who don't know each other, haven't heard the same, haven't spoken to the same people, but they read the same printing press. So the printing press has enormous implications um, with the Reformation. You know, the first book printed is the Bible. And the Catholic Church had said, you can't read the Bible only the priest can read the Bible. And the Reformation lies, uh, is rooted in the sense that everybody should be able to get at the truth for themselves. The idea of religious dissent, as Keith said, was very much uh, connected to the idea of sedition because a lot of the, of the legitimacy of the state was uh, thought to rest in the endorsement of God. So if you believed in a different kind of God or a different dogma of God, um, you were, in effect, uh, questioning the legitimation of the state. And so the state licensed printing presses. If you were a printer, you had to have a bond. Each printing press um, uh, was under the control of a censor, and uh, the printer had to submit what they did. So what Milton is objecting to is the licensing scheme, and this was very much associated with the oppression of the Stuart kings, the stewards tended to enforce the licensing schemes through the Star Chamber, which is one reason the Star Chamber got such a bad name. Milton did not say, and this is, of course, the foundation for the later Blackstone distinction between subsequent punishment and prior restraint. Milton did not say 
you shouldn't punish people for blasphemy. He thought you should punish people for blasphemy. If you said the wrong things, if you said things which were criminal, you should be punished. But what you shouldn't have is the, you shouldn't be able to uh, prevent the speech in the first place by requiring a license. That's what's going on in the passages that you read. That's later gets enshrined in Blackstone. And that is what our First Amendment is thought to mean until 1931. Keith, can I ask you about Francis Hutchison and James Madison? I was struck recently by the similarity in language between Madison's memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments in 1785 and Hutchison's definition of an unalienable right. Here's, here's Francis Hutchison. He says the rights of conscience are unalienable for two reasons. First, it's not in our power to transfer our freedom of thought to others. The right of private judgment of our inward sentiments is unalienable, Hutchison writes, since we cannot command ourselves to think what either we ourselves or any other person pleases. Second, it cannot serve any valuable purpose to make people worship God in any way that seems to them displeasing. And Madison invokes exactly the same two reasons when he defines the right to free exercise of religion as an unalienable right in 1785. Here's Madison's language. This right is in its nature an unalienable right because the opinions of men, depending only on the evidence contemplated by their own minds, cannot follow the dictates of other men. It is unalienable also because it is the duty of every man to render to the creator such homage and such only as he believes to be acceptable to him. Is is that uh, similarity of text significant? Uh, did Madison get his definition of unalienable rights from Hutchison? And what is the importance of that for the First Amendment? Oh, yeah, I certainly think there's a, a lot of connection there. And of course, they go back to some common sources as well and thinking about the importance of liberty of conscience uh, broadly. There are many arguments they're being offered and developed as to why should you protect these kinds of religious dissenters uh, and being able to express themselves. There's a lot of interest on the part of both the state uh, and religious authorities to suppress uh, religious dissenters um, in various ways. And so trying to develop out, well, what's the case for, what's the argument for um, allowing people who have these fundamental religious disagreements uh, to be free to uh, continue to express and develop these uh, religious disagreements. And one kind of argument that's being offered um, is the one that's really highlighted here, uh, uh, which is each individual uh, owns their own personal duties to God. Uh, and um, ultimately, that's between God and that individual. And so as a consequence, those individuals need to really believe what those commitments are, um, and they need the freedom to um, make up their own minds about that. And so while the state uh, might be able to control their external activities, um, can suppress their speech um, on these questions, uh, the state really can't ultimately get into people's minds and convert them to a set of ideas. And you then need to allow people to have the freedom to think these things through and come to their own conclusions, um, ultimately. And so it was seen as a real religious obligation um, the individuals had to be able to think these things through, to make up their own minds, come to the right kinds of conclusions, um, and have their um, thoughts um, in the right place um, on these uh, religious issues. It takes a bit of a leap to get from that kind of notion to then the kind of importance of speech uh, to democracy and political activities um, that we uh, get um, uh, later. Uh, but you certainly see a resonance of that kind of argument, for example, in the kind of concern that's at stake in Barnett um, of thinking to what degree can the state um, impose orthodoxy um, on people, compel people uh, to say things they don't actually believe. And this very early set of arguments about the importance of liberty of conscience is precisely about um, the ability of people uh, not to have to say things they don't actually believe. Wonderful. I think we have time for one last round in this superb conversation. 
Robert, you mentioned Mill. Tell us about Mill's significance to the philosophy of why free speech matters and, and on what sources was Mill drawing uh, that uh, fit him into the classical liberal tradition that also influenced the founders? Well, when we think about, you know, combining this with religion, uh, you know, the great Ur source here is Locke's letter on toleration. That's where much of this argument is coming from. And, you know, Locke is a very religious thinker, however much we appropriate him for secular purposes. By the time we get to John Stuart Mill, we're thinking almost entirely in secular terms. And Mill is saying, what does it mean to validate an opinion? It means you can be think it through for yourself. And you have to think it through for yourself without the pressure of state censorship. And Mill was also very uh, impressed with the need to insulate persons from social pressure, you know, from the the fact that the people around you are going to shun you unless you believe a certain thing. He thought that that kind of social pressure leads to deadness in the soul. Mill is a very interesting character. He, He comes out of the Benthamite utilitarian tradition but he himself is very attracted to Coleridge and to German romanticism. He has an idea of the self as a personality. That, I mean, he's a very eccentric personality himself, but the personality has to find its own organic unity. It has to discover itself. This is not something you find in Bentham at all or in the utilitarian tradition. But Mill fuses these two traditions and they come together in his sense of what it is to form an opinion for yourself, that you have to be free to do it. Now, the free to do it is the roots of it are in the conscience arguments we've been uh, talking about, but now it's secular. It's not tied to an organ in the self. The conscience, which has direct connection to natural law or to the nature of the universe, is just rather that uh, you have to be free to believe what you believe or you wouldn't be a full person. So the ultimate roots in that are the notion of what it is to be a person, and that a lot of our roots come out of German Hegelian romanticism, not a, and uh, you know measured by the Reformation as understood in Germany. That's um, that's where Mill is coming out of, and of course his great treatise on liberty um, influences Holmes, influences every subsequent thinker about the need to be able to dissent in order to validate the true, because unless you're free to dissent, you don't know whether what you're saying is true or not, and you need to test it. And it has to survive the tests of critical thought. That was Mill's basic insight. And Mill has another insight, which becomes very important to the kinds of cases that Keith was talking about, which is the truth is often causes distress. You know, it, it hurts to know the truth. It's not a calming, serene experience. It's not that you enter, enter the multifoliate rose of Dante's Paradiso. No, when you get the truth, it often hurts. And uh, you don't want it, and you fight it. And Mill knew that. And um, it's that insight which is behind the toleration of the outrageous speech in the decisions that um, Keith was talking about earlier. Keith, the last word in in this wonderful discussion is to you. Are there any classical sources that you would like to recommend for our readers? Brandeis quoted Pericles' funeral orations. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty is a, is a quotation from Pericles as translated by Alfred Zimmern. And yet, of course, the, the Greeks were not fans of freedom of expression, as Milton said, citing Plato. To what degree was the classical commitment to the duty to exercise our faculties of reason in order to discover the truth central to the framers? And are there any particular classical texts you want to call out? 
Yeah, I think the the classical sources you say are not uh, necessarily very strong on this uh, very directly. They're being uh, leveraged um, by later thinkers who are drawing out uh, themes uh, that start becoming particularly significant to the kinds of political and religious debates um, that they are having uh, much later. So strikingly, uh, you start looking at these kinds of examples of uh, speakers uh, in earlier day uh, and the significance of those speakers uh, to how uh, things work. Notably, part of the classical tradition as it's being inherited by the founders is some nervousness about speakers. So one of the sort of persistent themes that they draw out of uh, classical thinking is a worry about demagoguery, um, the possibility of uh, leaders with bad intentions riling up a mob um, that leads them to some fear of democracy in its uh, purest forms, um, as precisely uh, as uh, Robert pointed to, sort of people in an arena um, uh, listening to a speaker that's going to excite passions um, and might lead them in uh, dangerous uh, directions. And so uh, it's very much a double-edged sword as it's emerging out of these um, early traditions is to think about um, the significance of, of speech. Um, but later, more later really than what the founders are particularly focused on, uh, we wind up turning back to these examples of people like Socrates um, and the significance of philosophical discussion as being discomforting, um, of putting individual reason against um, social pressure, um, against uh, conventional uh, wisdom. Um, and uh, Socrates um, paid the ultimate price uh, for antagonizing uh, his fellow citizens with unpopular thoughts. Um, this eventually gets uh, celebrated as a critical um, uh, example of uh, what states should not be doing uh, of, of suppressing uh, speech and punishing people for having unpopular thoughts. Um, and uh, Socrates, to the extent he gets um, uh, put on a pedestal as sort of the founder of Western philosophy then um, becomes critical to later thinking about uh, that's the model we ought to be following. A lone individual with dissenting views um, ought to have the freedom to express those dissenting views. He ought to have the freedom to annoy uh, his fellow citizens um, by challenging uh, what they think is uh, conventional wisdom. Um, and a free society, a society that's prepared to develop and improve, um, is going to be a society uh, that can hear out those criticisms um, and those dissenting views, can tolerate them and think about them and take them seriously uh, rather than punishing people for having them. Thank you so much, Robert Post and Keith Winnington, for a wonderful discussion of eight totemic Supreme Court decisions and several of the most important texts that inspired the founders. You've given us a model of learning and growing and wisdom. And dear we the people listeners, please treat yourself to the pleasure of reading the primary text that Robert and Keith recommended, both the eight opinions, all of which we'll post online as well as these extraordinarily inspiring texts from Milton to Mill. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, Robert Post, Keith Whittington, thank you for teaching us about the history, philosophy, and meaning of the First Amendment. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Today's show was produced by Melody Rowell and engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by our great interns, Kevin Kloss and Ruben Aguirre, as well as Sam Desai. Homework of the week, go to the resource page and read those eight First Amendment opinions. Friends, it's so worthwhile to actually read the primary texts and you'll be inspired by the prose and 
experience all sorts of enlightenment. And you'll find them on the resource page. And please also rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts. It's very meaningful if you go to the Apple Podcast page and leave us a review about how much you enjoy the show because it inspires others to find us as well. And remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We're in the middle of our crowdfunding campaign and with donations from all 50 states, we are really looking to expand participation. So if you can pitch in $5, $10 or more, that would be so wonderful. And if you'd like to sign up for recurring monthly donations, that would be so much appreciated as well. Every donation is doubled by the John Templeton Foundation, which means we can continue bringing you this meaningful learning, light, and constitutional debate. Thanks to all for learning together. And on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.